Welcome to David Gogo's Soul Bender podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections from a life on the road. Hey everybody, that's Laura. Laura, this is everybody. Here we go from David Gogo's secret underground lair high atop Gogo Mountain overlooking the honeymoon capital of Western Canada, Nanaimo. It's the Soul Bender podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Scott James. If you've ever seen pictures of David from the early years on the internets, you probably noticed the Stevie Ray Vaughan hat, the Stevie Ray Vaughan jacket, the Stevie Ray Vaughan pants. There's probably pictures of the Stevie Ray Vaughan ginch somewhere. I'm beginning to suspect that Stevie had a bit of an influence on young Gogo, Mr. Gogo. Yes, and this was all unlicensed merchandise that I was wearing. <laughs> no, it, the, the, the funny thing with Stevie Ray Vaughan... <clears throat> When he first showed up on the scene, um, it was a very visual thing besides just a musical thing. And I think that guys like Jimi Hendrix, you know, a lot of people, you, you, you try to emulate a look because you think the guy's cool and, and you want to look like that. But then you finally realize after a while, maybe I should be more concerned about the music that's happening rather than just trying to look like this guy. But um, there, there's no doubt that you know Stevie had a, a, a cool thing going. Absolutely. And especially... In the early to mid '80s, I mean, metal was the thing. I was in high school, and all the guitar players um, were learning the finger tapping, a la Eddie Van Halen, and 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 doing all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of like you know big hair, a lot of spandex. So it's kind of cool to see a guy with like a kind of a gaucho cowboy hat and um, scarves. <laughs> when did you first lay eyes and ears on Stevie? Well, I'd been playing guitar for a long time. I started playing guitar when I was about five years old and, you know, kind of farted around with it and eventually started to learn some songs. Uh, first guy that got me going was Elvis Presley. Saw him on TV. Same thing, a visual thing, you know. But instead of wanting to be a singer, when I saw Elvis, I wanted to be a guitar player. And in the early days, when he looked super cool, he always had a guitar on him. And um, eventually started listening to the British rock bands. And I somehow got into listening to blues. Now, my dad, in his record collection, along with the CCR and Hank Williams and that, he also had some some blues. He had Canned Heat, some B.B. King, some Otis Redding, um, Taj Mahal, stuff like that. So I, I heard that, and, and I could hear some of that in the British bands uh, from the 60s, especially when I started listening, listening to Cream and a bit of Jimi Hendrix. So I started looking, well, you know, Cream does this song, Born Under a Bad Sign. Well, you know, who wrote that? Oh, somebody, in, and then they talk about Albert King. So I started going back, and this is way before I'd heard about Stevie Ray Vaughan. So I, even at this young age, I became a bit of a blues snob, um, you know, and even though these were guys that, you know, had made records decades before I was even around. Um, so when Stevie first came out, I was reluctant to like him because I figured he's just some new guy. How could he be any good? But then I remember hearing about his first album, Texas Flood, and I picked up a copy, I believe on cassette, <laughs> went home and put it on my ghetto blaster, and when the first song came on, I went, wow. Second song, oh, holy shit. And by the third song, I was just freaking out. Who is this, and how do I see him play? That was, that was the first thought. And you did. How did that come to pass? Well, it was a weird thing. I believe I was in grade nine going to Cedar Junior High School, just outside of Nanaimo, BC. And I found out that Stevie Ray Vaughan was going to be playing in Vancouver 
Opening for Men at Work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can believe that. But Men at Work have these big hits, and I guess they're on the same record label. So the record label says, we've got this new artist. We'll send him out to open for these hit makers. So it was a really bizarre uh, bill. So my mom talked to my Uncle Danny. Uncle Danny was available to take me over on the ferry, so uh, go see Stevie Ray Vaughan. And then I found out, and this is way before the interwebs or anything, um, that he was going to be signing autographs at Kelly's Stereo Mart on Granville Street. Where I worked. Did you really? I did. <laughs> so you know. I up, didn't see him there. <laughs> upstairs on Granville Street. Wow. And... Um, yeah, so I went th- with Uncle Danny on BC Ferries, and he had this little Mickey of vodka, and kept sending <laughs> me down to the the snack bar to get more grapefruit juice, and <laughs> and we ended up in Vancouver, and and yeah, so that's when I first met Stevie. So he was just sitting there signing his vinyl copies of Texas Flood, had a nice handshake, and uh, he was very friendly. Uh, of course, way before cell phones now, so I didn't get a, a photo or anything. And then went to the show that night. Well, first we stopped in Gastown with Uncle Danny because he knew that you could sit at the old spaghetti factory in Gastown, and they'd keep bringing you hot, fresh bread and butter while you pretended you were going to order a meal That's and, right. and drink beer. I know it well. <laughs> Which was a great scam. Um, so, yeah, so we ended up, I believe it was the old Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, and um, Stevie came out and just just blew my mind. He was just, you know, like if, if you've seen the, um, it was originally on, I think, the new music on City TV out of Toronto, and it was live at the Alma Combo. It was kind of that era. I mean, he was just smoking with the original trio. And um, I remember there was me and about, there was a couple of hippie guys in front of me. We were all freaking out. Everyone else was like just not paying attention. They're waiting for the great men at work to come out. And um, so so Stevie did the whole nine yards, I think did Voodoo Child and threw his guitar around it. It just like was amazing. And then about two songs into Men at Work, I kind of went, well, Fuck this. <laughs> and nothing against those guys. You know, they, they did their thing, but it wasn't, that's not why I was there. Did the hippies get Stevie? Yeah. The hippie guys in front of me, they were like standing up, standing ovation. That's a funny thing. You're sitting on the floor at, at, at a, you know, hockey rink, and there's, I don't know, a couple 10,000, 20,000 people not paying attention, and then about 18 of us going, yes, <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever seen. And, uh, yeah, so man, I got back to school the next day, and uh, Uncle Danny dropped me off at school, and all, all, all my fellow students were like, oh, so how was Men at Work? I'm like, I don't know, man. I split during the second song. Like, that guy, he's so fucking weird. Gogo's so weird. But I was just there to see Stevie, and, and that's when I, I just, I mean, I had fully consumed the Kool-Aid at that point. I was like, this is what I want to do. It all made sense, because... I loved the, the, the British rock bands of the 60s, and I loved the blues. How do I put this both together? And it just seemed to be he, like he was the guy doing it. So is there a particular go-go tune where the spirit of Stevie shows up uh, most prominently? Well, it's funny because I don't know if it's out of laziness or what, but I never really learned to play his style per se. Like I never learned solos note for note. I know a lot of people did. I just kind of absorbed what he did. And in one of the first songs they ever wrote, it ended up on an album called Halfway to Memphis. It's a song called Soul Fevers. That's probably the one. Just the feel, it's a shuffle, it's got this kind of lazy right hand thing. So probably there. Which is also on 100.3 The Q's Rocktoria 2 album with the, what is it, The Persuaders? Yes. And so what that was, was I had a band called The Persuaders, or we had a band called The Persuaders, and um, we started to do well 
in Nanaimo and then moved to, you know, started doing gigs in Victoria, Vancouver. And as we picked up momentum, we started to get noticed. Um, yeah, so we were asked to play on 100.3 The Cues, Rocktoria. And I thought, well, if we're going to um, record something, I think we did two songs. I thought, why do a cover song? I should, we should do something original. But I wasn't I wasn't a songwriter at all then. It, it didn't really interest me. I was just so into playing blues, and, and there was so much of it out there to discover. In fact, I remember with that band, when we first started playing in bars in Nanaimo, we played music from Albert Collins and the Fabulous Thunderbirds and from Stevie Ray Vaughan, Magic Sam. And I remember one guy coming up to me and said, hey, man, I bought this record by this guy named Albert Collins, and he plays all your shit. <laughs> Well, not quite, sir. Actually, we play all his shit. But, um, so, th- yeah, so I wanted to write a song, and, and uh, I think I was, you know, probably had Stevie in mind when I wrote that, for sure. I see the walking down the street. She looked Yeah. 
Stevie Ray Vaughan, having not perished in a helicopter crash, walked in here right now. How do you think it would go for him in today's music landscape? The thing that freaks me out, um, because um, back in August, you know, it was, I hate to celebrate death anniversaries. you know? People always, oh, yeah. this day we lost someone, so I'd rather celebrate birthdays than that. But anyways, it was a pretty big day, but it's, it's been, 20, I believe, 29 years since he passed away. I can't believe it. I turned 50 this year, and I look at those pictures, the photographs I have of me when I'm 15 years old with Stevie. I mean, the poor guy only made it to 35 years old. And um, I don't know what, you know, he, he could have he just, he was huge, but I think he would have just continued to get better and better and better. I mean, he cleaned up his act in, in terms of uh, his substance abuse and all that, which made his, his death even uh, harder to take. I think, he'd, he, you know, he, we need more legends like that you know we're losing so many of them now just of old age and stuff i think he'd be huge i mean jeff beck for example is jeff beck's like 75 years old or something now the guy's playing better than ever like just he can blow anyone off the stage i think he's the best living guitar player and uh so i think stevie would just be doing just fine you got some serious facetime with mr vaughn how did that happen where did that happen well i was so lucky to spend quality time with him on several occasions and like I say (laughs) I still think of myself as the same 15 year old guy that I was but I'm not and so when I talk about Stevie to some of the younger players they kind of look at me like you knew Stevie what and it's like when I when I was young and I I met guys that knew Jimi Hendrix you just wanted to squeeze them for information so we talked earlier about me not wanting to like the new guy but he came along and, and blew me away and I went from not wanting to like him to wanting to be him, basically. Um, so much so, this is funny, there was a, uh, when, when his first album, Texas Flood, came out, they gave it a really shitty review in Guitar World magazine. So I wrote them a letter <laughs> at the tender young age of 14. And the next issue of Guitar World came out, and I remember being over selling firewood for my dad over at the sawmill and reading the guitar magazine, and there was a headline in the letter section, Don't Badmouth the Blues. 1983 uh, issue of Guitar World, and they printed my letter, where I basically told the guy he was a fantastic. Fuck. Yeah, I told the guy he was fucked in the head. I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, years, years later, on one of the, the the magazine's anniversaries, the guy admitted it was one of the the biggest follies of his career was to suggest that Stevie Ray Vaughan's Texas Flood album was boring and. Not worth buying. Was he the guy at Decca who turned down the Beatles? He, he might as well have been. It was very similar. I mean, there you are. You're supposed to be the record review for Guitar Magazine, and you're going, Stevie Ray who? This guy sucks. But, I mean, you show at 14 years old, I actually had a letter published defending him. So um, I was dying to see him play again. And he did come to Vancouver one more time, but I was unable to go. He was This time he was opening for the Moody Blues, if you can believe that. Oof. These bizarre <laughs> bills. But anywho, um, he was just about to release Couldn't Stand the Weather, his second album, and I found out he's going to be playing at the Royal Theater in Victoria. Well, you know I'm going. So it was a funny thing. I got my mom to drive me down, and 
I thought, well, I'm going to go to this Royal Theater and see if maybe he's getting set up or doing sound check or something. So I walked up from the hotel and uh, as like maybe a block away from the, the Royal Theater, and there's a guy on a payphone. So old I am. But the guy on the payphone sees me, and I'm walking. I got my Stevie Ray Vaughan-style hat. I got my shirt I got at the at the Moody Blues, or the uh, Man at Work gig, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan in Double Trouble, you know, feeling good. And this guy just kind of covers up the payphone. He goes, hey. Looks at me, I go, yeah. And he goes, are you going to the show tonight? I said, yeah. He goes, right on. Then he goes back to his phone call. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. But, And then I can see Stevie, the, the tour bus had just pulled up, and they're getting out of the bus and walking into the venue. But I'm on the other side of the street, and there's tons of traffic. And I'm, I almost killed myself trying to run across the street to meet him. But I got there too late. They closed the door. God damn it. Didn't they know who you were? <laughs> Didn't they know who I think I am? So I, 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 I went over there, and I was just hanging out, just you know, listening. And I could hear them kind of playing a little bit. And, and then a guy comes out for a smoke. And ends up he's the promoter. Now this is the strangest thing. It ends up it was a young Mark Norman. He ended up working for Periscope Productions in Vancouver, and then ended up being a big part of CPI Productions uh, with Michael Cole and doing the Stones and everything. But this, I believe, that this was his first independent, independently promoted concert. Steve Ray Vaughan at the Royal Theater. Uh, in my scrapbook, I've got the original playbill the tickets were ridiculous like you know like eight dollars or something twelve dollars maybe anyways he came up for smoke and obviously i'm dressed like stevie oh you're a big fan huh i said yeah i am and he goes well tell you what maybe i can try to see if i can get a uh, an autograph for you okay so he goes back in the venue and he comes out about 10 minutes later and he says hey um stevie's manager saw you said he was on a payphone outside and saw you walking, so um, here's your autograph, but also uh, here's a backstage pass. Why don't you come meet the boys? Wow. <laughs> now, that wouldn't have happened in the days of cell phones. <laughs> Luckily, this guy had to find a payphone, and I just happened to be walking by, so serendipity. Uh, so I, I go in, and Stevie's like, hey, like right away, shakes my hand. How you doing? Good. Great, man. You know, introduces me to the band. And he says to me, you play guitar? I said, yeah, I do. He goes, well... I need you to play some guitar for me because I want to go out in the venue and see what the sound's like. Oh. <laughs> so he just puts that guitar, that guitar, like the, the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan beat up old Stratocaster. Okay, put that on at 14 years old and look at the band. I'm like, well, okay, shuffle in the key of E or whatever it was. And uh, we just started playing. I started playing with the guys and Stevie went out and he's like, okay. And he's talking to the sound man and adjusting his sound. So that was kind of cool. And I uh, came up with, thanks, man. I go, oh, yeah, cool. That, yeah. And then so, you know, they kind of, they, he did a song with the band, and then we went, um, the dressing rooms are downstairs at the Royal Theater. So we went down there, and this is the, a really fortuitous thing, is um, they actually had a photographer there. Because once again, this is 1984 or something, and, uh, you know, you don't have the cell phones and that uh, to take pictures. But I did get a couple photos that day, which is just fantastic. I mean, that's, it's a nice memory to have and normally you just you just wouldn't do it back then anyways he was just super cool and was talking to me like what do you do and what's going on and blah 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 so i just had the time of my life he um let me sit with his guitar tech at the side of the stage during the whole concert and it was fantastic so that was kind of the first hang so i remember getting back to the hotel room and my mom had like taken my sisters somewhere probably to miniature world or wherever it was and uh i was i mean i was just on cloud nine it was incredible I have a body part on display at Miniature World, by the way. <laughs> With the magnifying glass? 
Man, Stevie Ray Vaughan asking wee little David Gogo to play guitar so he could check the sound must be the rough equivalent of a test pilot asking wee little Scott James to take uh, a new Boeing 777 for a spin so that he can see how it looks from the ground. Luckily, I was so young and stupid that I wasn't nervous. I just went, oh. And, and you know, it was, it was a big part of it was his attitude. Of his, he wasn't at all intimidating. He, he talked to me, even though I was, I was a 14 year old kid. He was speaking to me as a peer. Oh, do you play guitar? Yeah. Hey, man, could you play my guitar mm-hmm. so I could, you know, see, I can hear it and I can know how it sounds out front for the audience, which is fantastic. But the next time I saw him was a little more um, self conscious, I think, or a little more aware of, of, of the situation. I was woke. No, <laughs> no, not those days. <laughs> How long did he last after that? Well, I got to see him a lot after that. He came again to the Royal Theater. Uh, not that long later, like probably maybe a year later. And that, well, that's a whole mess. This is a, should we really get into it? Of course. Okay. So by this time, yeah, I, I must have been 16 because I had my beautiful 64 and a half Mustang convertible. Drove down on my own this time. And I'd recorded some kind of a silly little demo tape. For some reason, musicians do that, especially when they're younger. Uh, you know, like, I'm going to give him a tape of my stuff. Well, it's probably the last thing I want to do is listen to some shitty blues guitar player. <laughs> but anyways, I'd recorded that. And I think I, I actually brought a guitar with me. I don't know why I did that. But I brought it backstage. And he played it a bit. Went, oh, that's nice. So I actually have a guitar that Stevie played. Um, but he was, starting to, he was starting to give her pretty good then. He was starting to party pretty good. And... I feel fine to talk about it because it's been well documented. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm a 16-year-old guy. Same thing. We hang out at the gig. Uh, then he wants to go out and kind of, you know, check out the nightlife a bit. So there was a fellow that was hired just to drive him around for the, for the evening. And because I was with these guys, I we went to Harpo's nightclub, and I was just allowed in because I was with these guys that were older than me. It was an, an ID situation, even though I was underage. And there was, a, you know, some local band playing and um, kind of a cover band, but Stevie got up and played with them. And, and then we're all sitting at a table and having some drinks. I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. But then it's the first time I'd ever seen this. They had these little vials. Um, and it looked like, um, like there, there was two parts of the vial. So there was cocaine on each side. And you'd open up one, and that was enough for one nostril. And then you open up the other one, was enough for the other nostril. So there was kind of pretending to drop something on the floor and pick it up and snorting this cocaine. And I'd never see, seen that. I'm like, oh, okay. And having some drinks. And uh, I was like, okay. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, but he was cool. He was cool. So we ended up going back uh, to his hotel. But this is what happened was he was really starting to go for it. And something happened in the elevator. And he started coughing. And he seemed like he was choking. And the guy said he was with, he was with the guitar tech and some other like road manager or something. And they recognized what was going on. This is obviously was not an uncommon thing. I don't know if he was having a seizure or what, but they immediately stopped the next floor, opened the elevator, told me, keep going. Because I knew where I was going. They gave me the key to Stevie's room or something. And they took him, and I remember as the elevator door closing, them getting him out to the stairwell and smacking him as hard as they could on the back to make him cough up whatever whatever was happening. I don't know. So that was freaky. (laughs) And so I'm just sitting in his room, and then finally they show up, and he kind of walks in, and he apologized. He said, I'm sorry, man, uh, something, something weird happened there. And Anyways, uh, he goes, so we should probably get some beers or something. So we get some beers, and, and as we're hanging out, I, m- I remember he went, 
to, to get, you know, maybe pay for the beer or something. We got it delivered and the phone rang. He goes, would you mind grabbing that? And I, hello? And it's like, yeah, Stevie around? I go, sure. And Stevie goes, who is it? He goes, I go, may I ask who's calling? It's, it's Jackson Brown. Right, it's Jackson Brown, Stevie. So <laughs> like, he's just crazy. But we hung out and, and, and he listened to the stupid tape I'd brought him and, you know, kind of humored me with that. And then it, it was just, this is the ultimate peer pressure. He says to me, well, I think you saw this a little bit earlier, but this is kind of what I do. And he puts some cocaine out on the, on the desk there at the hotel. And he goes, I am not suggesting in any way that you do this because it's, it's just, it's not good. <laughs> he says, but you're my guest. So if you want to, you can. And I said, no, that's cool. I mean, I just watched the guy just about die of a seizure. <laughs> but, but he was calm at this point. He seemed very lucid. And we were just talking about music and talking about this, talking about that and drinking some beers. Finally, everyone starts to get tired and they're leaving. And Stevie <laughs> kind of looks at me and he goes, you're not going to leave, are you? And I said, no, because I'm this dumb kid. I mean, I don't want to leave. I want to hang out with the guy. And he goes, well, I got to go to bed soon. He goes, do you have a hotel room or anything? I go, no, I was just going to sleep in my car, you know. He goes, well, fuck. Now, you don't have to do that. He goes, here's the deal. He says, there's only one bed in this room. And whoever I sleep with, I fuck. And I'm not going to fuck you. Uh-oh. <laughs> He says, but I know, he goes, I get it. Like, I could just see, he almost was like kind of laughing because he could understand that, you know, this hero worship. He'd done it, you know. He, he, he worshipped all these different blues guys, and he's like, this kid's not going to leave. So, so I remember saying, oh, I can just sleep on the floor. <laughs> and uh, so I'm laying down, and after about 10 minutes, he threw a pillow at me. And he was, he was just laughing. Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Was he not married at that time or had a girlfriend? Yeah. 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 One or the other. Yeah. Kind of little, little both, I think. Yeah, okay, but it was it was hilarious. I mean, and I think about it now, and I go, "What the fuck was I thinking?" You know, like I just wouldn't leave the guy's room. I mean, I try to be nice because I've I've been in my career. I've been so fortunate, especially when I was younger. All you know, a lot of the great blues men were very nice to me. They'd let me sit in with them. They'd hang out with me, but I, I wouldn't let some kid sleep on my hotel room floor or you know like it's just it, it, it's it's so ridiculous now but he got it and there's been a couple of books written about stevie uh where they mention kind of this situation they don't mention me by name but they mention that he recognized that it was this young guy dressed as him and it's it's that's when he realized he was on the other side of the hero worship thing where he used to dress like hendrix or dress like whoever that he was trying to emulate and now he was on the other side of it so that was something he tried to get across to me was, hey, you got to get your own thing. Like it's cool to, to learn from other people, but you got to get your own thing. So that was an important message for him to send to me. Like you find your own thing. So we actually, I remember one time in the tour bus, he was playing me some, some really cool Howlin' Wolf and different players and, te- you know, just showing me what these guys had. And it wasn't long afterwards that Albert Collins, a great Texas blues guitar player, said the same thing to me. And he said, you got to, Get your own ID. That's what he called it. You got to get your own ID. And then I realized, okay, yeah, yeah. Because I remember, you know, I started. I was playing in, in bars in Nanaimo back then. And if I was walking up Commercial Street and I'd think to myself, I wonder who's playing at the, at the, at the Queen's Hotel tonight. And I could hear the guitar player. And I could usually, if it was my friend Michael, I went, oh, I, Michael's playing. So he had an uh, ID. You know, he, he had this personality is playing so that that, that's when i started working on i went okay well instead of dressing like stevie and trying to be like stevie and playing all stevie songs you got to find your own thing that was important 
so the next time I saw him, now unfortunately, this is when he was getting pretty bad with the substance abuse. He liked his cocaine, hmm. and he liked his Crown Royal whiskey. And he got to the point where he was putting cocaine into the Crown Royal whiskey. Oh, boy. Yeah, which is a kind of... What do you of, call that? It's some kind of a speedball, I guess. Oh. But um, it got so bad that he didn't realize that when he would drink it like that, that the, that the coke would get in his stomach and crystallize and was starting to chop his guts up. Now, all this time, I could see he was a little more fucked up. Like, the first few times, he was still lucid. But this is he's starting to get a little sloppy. Um, and I remember at this show, it was in, I had to go to Vancouver for this one. Somehow, like, wangled my way backstage again. I don't know how I did that. I kept getting away with it. I remember Colin James being there because Stevie kind of took him under his wing, and they did a lot of playing together. Bonnie Raitt was there as well, so it must have been a double bill of some kind. But, you know, I hung out with Stevie a bit backstage that day, but the vibe was a little different. And it was he, and he was getting much more popular at this time, so it wasn't like you're just going to go and go up to the hotel room with the guy, you know, uninvited or anything. But he seemed a, 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 little, a little sloppy. Um, and then the next time I saw him, it was great, because he, 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 he cleaned up his act, and he played the Orpheum, and um, it was fantastic. Um, you know, he did a great job. And this time they'd expanded the band. They had a keyboard player. I managed to go backstage then and, 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 and visit. Um, same thing, not, not as much of a, an all-night hang, but just, you know, hey, how you doing and blah, blah, blah. And um, he was, you know, always asking what I was up to. And finally, the last time I saw him was not long before he passed away. And he was playing at... He was playing in Vancouver, I believe at the Pacific Coliseum, and it was a double bill, him and Joe Cocker. And I got backstage, but this time it was, was a good hang. It was, it was really like like great to see him. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? And I just come off the road. I, I went down to um, to Austin, and I, I, I ran into Albert Collins to mention Albert again. And, you know, I'd opened for Albert a few times in Canada and sat in with him, and he kind of let me tour with him. So I was telling Stevie about this. He goes, that's great. And it was so funny because Stevie was such a fan of music. You know, when I'm talking to him, he's like really interested in what I'm saying. Wow, so you got to play with Albert? Yep. Oh, I love playing with Albert. Man, he's the best. And then we went over to um, his guitar station at the side of the stage there and he's showing me these, you know, what guitar he's playing these days. And he's like, look at this Strat. He goes, Eric Clapton gave me this. It was like two teenage kids, you know, talking. And, you know, I get to play this guitar that Eric played. And then um, he's doing sound check. He's showing me the different pedals. Now, here's a funny little thing is um, during sound check, he was trying to get this feedback note. And he's kind of hitting the whammy bar and facing the amp. And he's looking at me like, what the, you know, something's not right. So he stops the band. And he says to this tech he had, it was an amp tech, who I'd never met. He was a new guy in the crew. And he goes, man, there's something wrong with that middle amplifier. Because Stevie had about 10 amps on stage. And the guy goes, no, everything's cool. Stevie goes, no, I think there's something wrong with that middle amp. You can just tell, he kind of looks at me like, fuck, buddy. Like, I'm not asking, I'm telling. You know, there's something wrong with this amp. And the guy looks up, he goes, oh, you're right, Stevie. One of the tubes blew out of it. And Stevie just kind of gives me like the look and shakes his head, right? <laughs> uh, so epilogue at Quinn Martin Production. After Stevie died, I pick up a copy of Musician Magazine. There's an article on this amp tech. The man behind Stevie Ray Vaughan's tone. Yeah, right, buddy. You didn't even know when the fucking amp was blown up. Anyways, I digress. So we had a good hang, and then um, before the show, we're in the dressing room, and, and Stevie had just got cassette tapes of some of the rough mixes or approval mixes for the Family Style album that he had just recorded with his brother Jimmy Vaughn. So Niall Rogers, the producer, had sent them out. So I got to hear all the stuff backstage. 
And to me, it was just leaps and bounds. That album, just the production and the songs, was, I was like, wow, this is really fucking good, man. This is going to be huge. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, it was a privilege to hear that. But then Stevie was looking at me, and he kind of smiles, and he looks at Tommy Shannon, the bass player, and he goes, remember this guy when he first showed up? He's pointing at me. Remember he had a hat like mine? He's all dressed up like me. And Tommy goes, yeah. <laughs> and Stevie says, well, looks like you got your own thing now. Remember I told you to do that? I said, yeah. And he goes, that's great, man. He goes, you're playing with Albert Collins. And I think I might have been signed to my first record deal at that time. But it's something, things were going well. And um, so, the, you know, he did the show. The show was great. Now, here's the weird thing. He had been through so much when he'd gone through the tough times with the drugs and alcohol. A lot of people thought he was going to drop dead, and he didn't. He beat it. Not only did he beat it, but he sounded better than ever. Um, but after the show, I was like, Stevie, holy shit, I've never heard you play like that. And he said, well, and he kind of looks up in the sky. He goes, you never know when it's going to be your last show. Oh, boy. Yeah. And I've heard from many people, whether reading it in interviews or talking to people that knew Stevie, that he seemed to sense that something was happening. And I'm not one of those hocus-pocus guys at all. But he just it kept occurring that afternoon and that evening of him saying, you always got to play your, your every show like it's going to be your last. You never know when it's going to be your last. Oh, okay. But anyway, so I went to leave the venue, and uh, we go aside, and he's going to get into his um, tour bus, and um, we get out, and there's, you know, there's a fence between the tour bus, you know, keeping the audience away, or, you know, the, the, the after after show people that want autographs and stuff and we go out and stevie looks he goes oh i should sign a few autographs and i go yeah man go for it and i said i'm gonna i'm gonna take off and uh he goes okay man and he looks at me he goes hey he goes it's been really nice knowing you which seemed really final portentous it was it was strange and then he came up and he gave me the hardest fucking hug i've ever had and that was it and like like a, a it was not long afterwards i remember i get a phone call I was staying with a girlfriend, and uh, I got a phone call kind of early in the morning, which pissed me off. And it was my sister, and she says, "Are you were you sleeping?" And it was really confusing. Like, of course I was sleeping. What are you talking about? I was kind of being a dick. And uh, she goes, she just blurted it out. Stevie Ray Vaughan died. Yeah. What? I couldn't believe it. So I went downstairs to this girl's bedroom, and I turned on the radio, and they were playing a Stevie Ray Vaughan song. So you know mm -hmm. that's not a good sign. You mentioned Tommy Shannon. You should bring back the Archangels, my friend. Well, Scott, when we talk about recording my first album, I've got some Archangel stories for you. Um, that was a fantastic record. Yeah. Um, Doyle Bramhall the second, Charlie Sexton, Chris Whipperleighton on drums. Severely underrated. Absolutely. And produced by Little Steven. Yeah, well, when we talk about my first album, I will talk to you about that album. But it was fantastic, wasn't it? And it was, it was cool that those guys went on to do that and, and then later did the Double Trouble. I ended up opening up the Double Trouble show here in Victoria. Oh, God, that must have been 10 years ago or something. But I, I think I did Vancouver and Victoria opening for them. And I came up and go, I go, I don't know if you guys remember me. And they, look, they go, yeah, we remember you. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of, it was nice to see those guys again. And, and, um, and once again, you know, to, to, you know, I'm doing my own thing now. But they sure were nice to me when I was a young, a youngster. Archangels, to me, are the kind of band you want to see play in a little shack bar in the middle of nowhere where, you know, the sawdust on the floor is actually yesterday's furniture, which, uh, come to think of it, is much like some of the places you've played. Yeah, I still do. <laughs> 
peanut shells on the floor. <laughs> Buds on Broadway, Saskatoon. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, but I've been told the blues scene and the guitar scene wouldn't be the same today if Stevie Ray Vaughan had never existed. Not the way it is now. I mean, Wowie Zowie, his influence is, I think, immeasurable. I remember when my first album came out, we were on the road and we were playing in somewhere in Arizona, and they'd build it as Battle of the Guitars. And it was me against some local guy. And he was a black guy, and I thought, well, shit, you know, I'm in the southern United States. This guy probably play way better blues than, than I can. And the guy came out wearing a hat like Stevie's and was playing a bunch of Stevie material. And I went, wow, okay, so this is a whole new thing. So it just showed that he wasn't just white guys. It was just the, the blues scene in general. And Stevie's influence w- was huge because he was a guitar hero at a time we, we really needed a guitar hero for the more roots players. Like I said, when I at that time, there was a lot of metal playing and a lot of copycat guys, and was the finger style with the finger tapping. Um, he was the guy we needed. Um, you know, Eric Clapton wasn't doing much at the time. Uh, you know, Hendrix was long gone. So he he was that guy from my generation. And I'm, I'm kind of, I think, one of the last kind of pre-Stevie Ray Vaughan blues guitar players of, of guys that I hang out with, where I was actually playing the guitar and playing blues before I ever heard Stevie. Most guys, Stevie's just always been there. So his tone, his technique, they've all known it. But it was a, a total genre changer. And not only was he an influence for all the Kenny Wayne Shepherds and all these kind of guys, but he reopened the doors for people like Buddy Guy, uh, Albert Collins, Hubert Sumlin, you name it. Because if Stevie would talk in an interview in a guitar magazine or in a radio show about someone like Buddy Guy, all these young guitar players that only just knew Stevie would go, well, who's Buddy Guy? Got to find out who it is, you know? And, um, yeah, so 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 he, he not only turned young people on to, to playing guitar and playing music, but turned those same people on to the elder generation, you know? And, um, you know, and we only got Buddy left out of all those guys, you know? B.B.'s gone and Albert Collins is gone, Albert King's gone, all these guys, you know? Uh, lastly, if they made blues illegal tomorrow, what would you do? Well, I suppose if they still had sex and drugs, I could do without the blues. All right, that sounds like a fair assessment. Coming up next time, wild, possibly even salacious tales from Montreux. I'm Scott James. Remember to boogie. This has been David Gogo's Soulbender podcast. To stay up to date, follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.